listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 155. Following up on last week's conversation about Janus, this week we bring you a panel of workers who are rediscovering the power of collective action, from public schools to Harvard to hotels to JetBlue. There is still plenty of life and labor, we promise. But first, we bring you the news. Nurses at the University of Vermont Medical Center are on strike as I record this on Thursday, a two-day action involving some 1,800 nurses who are members of the Vermont Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals, or VFNHP. The two-day strike revolves, as so many of them do in the American healthcare system, around safe staffing levels so that nurses are not overworked and are able to pay proper attention to each patient, as well as raises to a competitive wage level. Vermont has some of the lowest wages for nurses in the country, and UVMMC some of the lowest in the state. These low wages have created the staffing crisis, with some 180 vacancies at the hospital, which leaves the already overstretched nurses filling in the gaps. But of course, the hospital, which claims it cannot pay the nurses the prevailing wages, found money to bring in replacement workers during the strike. Nurse Julie McMillan told the socialist worker, Now our big problem is ancillary staff. We don't have enough aides, transporters, and housekeepers. Nurses are constantly getting pulled away to do non-nursing functions, which can can exacerbate the lack of RNs in general. So another part of our platform is a $15 minimum wage for all support staff to help keep people at the hospital and allow nurses to do what we're there to do. Imagine that. The nurses have criticized the non-profit, supposedly, hospitals, a lopsided pay structure, where executives rake in the money while nurses and staff get strapped. Posters on the picket line today compared UVMMC CEO John Brumstead, who was paid $2.2 million last year, to Donald Trump. Local teachers, fellow nurses from other states, and community members joined the nurses on the picket lines. For nurses to go on strike, they must face the inevitable charges that they don't care about their patients, which are always weaponized by a hospital administration that is less interested in their patients than in the bottom line. Yet nurses, like teachers, are in an excellent position to communicate with the broader community about their working conditions and the way that they're treated, and to make arguments that those working conditions, to paraphrase the common teacher struggle tagline, are their patients' healing conditions. If you are a striking nurse now or in the past, you can always reach us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're one of the 60% of American workers who've joined the civilized industrial world, congratulations. In the event that you or your family experiences a medical crisis, long-term illness, or have a baby, you're rewarded with the legal right to take time off from work without fear of losing your job. For the other 40% of you, well, you're on your own. For decades, this is the horrible, impossible choice that parents and family caregivers have faced every time they're forced to weigh their health needs against the importance of their income, because our current federal laws only guarantee unpaid leave time, which means that people can lose their jobs or their income for taking temporary leave, even for a medical emergency. For years, progressive lawmakers have pushed for comprehensive federal benefits to allow all workers to take medical leave for family or self-care while retaining at least part of their income. And now even Republicans have upped their game with a proposal from Senator Mark Rubio and mommy-in-chief Ivanka Trump now pending to offer some form of paid family leave. 
But don't be fooled, the conservative plan isn't going to provide meaningful funding. In contrast to successful paid leave schemes already implemented in several states, the Rubanka plan, which is set to be introduced in the coming days, is based not on social insurance, but on robbing social security funds in order to pay for family leave insurance. And even then, this is just for new parents with newborns, not for caregivers or relatives, or God forbid, for you yourself, in case you need to take time off to deal with your own medical problems. In other words, every day of paid sick leave you take ends up being one less day you spend in retirement. So you end up with a shorter retirement exchange for time spent nursing a loved one back to health, dealing with a mental health crisis, or caring for your newborn child. So it all evens out in the end. For your boss, that is. Progressive groups, by contrast, have been pushing for the Family Act, which provides a real social insurance scheme paid through a small additional payroll tax, which covers most forms of long-term family medical needs for up to 12 weeks. Ellen Bravo, head of Family Values at Work, recently discussed the flaws in the Republican proposal and why it's not fair to rob people of financial security in retirement just to provide health security during their working years. You could take up to 12 weeks, but you're taking it from your own Social Security. So every day you take is a cut from your future retirement. And so the danger is that women, would, particularly birth mothers, would take more leave than men because they would need it to heal as well as to bond with a child and because the family would be taking a financial hit and therefore that it would add to both the wage and other disparities by gender and would also add to discrimination against women because employers would assume that women rather than men would take it and it would disadvantage women in hiring and it is a false choice. We don't need to choose between establishing a paid leave fund and shoring up retirement security. We can do both. There's no reason to do this. We have a tested method in the social insurance fund. It's been done for years in a number of states. It works. There, These funds are solvent. 70% of small businesses support this approach because it makes it affordable for them. You know, They can't afford to provide this on their own. This way they can make sure that their employees you know, get the time they need. The summer is usually a slow news time, but of course, in Trumplandia, there is no such thing as a slow news day. That might explain why massive protests and a general strike in Haiti have gotten so little attention over the past few days. The Haitian government, as part of an international monetary fund-induced plan that also includes the cutting back of food subsidies, intended to raise fuel prices by up to 50%, which kicked off widespread massive protests across the country. A general strike shuttered businesses and halted work all across Haiti, and the protesters were demanding the resignation of the Haitian president. Haiti has suffered under the weight of successive debt crises since it won its independence and was promptly forced to pay reparations to the country that had enslaved the Haitian people. And it remains incredibly poor, struggling to recover from the devastating 2010 earthquake and the more recent Hurricane Matthew, even though, of course, billions of dollars from across the globe were raised to aid the nation after the earthquake. It is entirely understandable that in the face of yet more IMF-induced austerity, Haitians would rebel. 
There is not a lot of good, reliable English language coverage on this situation. Most outlets are running the same one AP story, and most of the coverage focuses on violence and looting rather than, you know, a nationwide general strike to force political change. So we'd love to hear from any listeners who can tell us more. You can email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Once again, Uber and yellow taxis are headed for a full-on collision on the streets of New York City. In the wake of a series of horrific suicides among taxi workers, the city is grappling with the issue of putting tighter regulations on the rideshare app industry that has come to monopolize the for-hire vehicle service sector. Both Uber and traditional taxi drivers are being driven into massive financial crisis, and the streets are so flooded with all manner of cars, it's nearly impossible for any driver to earn a living wage these days. Recently, the city's Taxi and Limousine Commission commissioned a study on the prospects for instituting a living wage for cab drivers. And they came up with a scheme authored by economists James Parrott and Michael Reich to award Uber drivers a basic minimum wage that's in line with New York's minimum wage laws, a phased-in $15 an hour, after deducting for rest time and other expenses. But this wage formula relies on Uber coming up with a way to voluntarily adjust the fares and its commission levels to ensure that full-time drivers make roughly the equivalent of the city's minimum wage. It's unclear how they'll do this, but it will leave them mostly with the choice of either taking a smaller cut of drivers' fare payments, which currently ranges up to 25% of each user fee as Uber's commission, or by charging users more or simply ensuring that workers see their pay limited in other ways whenever they earn nominally more than the standard wage as they take on more rides or work longer hours. Whatever the case, the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, the official union representing both rideshare app drivers and taxi cab drivers, has denounced the proposal as too limited and restrictive, too reliant on Uber's basic business model, which gives the company full control over how much drivers are paid, fare rates, an unlimited share of profits for the company and its shareholders, all the while dodging taxes and creating an overinflated market that has ballooned to some 70,000 Uber cars alone across the city. With other car services like Lyft also jumping on the rideshare bandwagon, traditional cabbies are left drowning in debt. The vast majority of drivers are earning below $15 an hour currently, but it's not just that. They lack basic health care benefits. They're being forced to work excessively long hours just to make ends meet in this ultra-expensive city. Taxi Workers Alliance staff attorney Zubin Soleimani explains why the new Uber proposal just doesn't work for Uber drivers or for yellow cabbies. Driver income that's accrued organically through the fare um, is falling below this level. If drivers continue to earn at similar levels, they just have to pay the wage supplement every week or every month or however the till you decide. And there would be little incentive for them to offer more than that out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, I think looking at this proposal in the context of what these companies' pay practices have been, right? There's been there's been a slow and steady march to lower driver pay over time and. And last year, when they de-linked driver pay from the fair amount, at that point, they started charging more on average um, for each trip than they had been in previous years, yet those gains didn't accrue to the drivers. So we've already we've already seen that Uber has, has been on a track to getting away with, with decreasing driver pay over time, and this proposal... This proposal locks them into a formula that Uber basically chose itself um, over the past two years, with the exception of the supplement. 
And that was Zubin Soleimani of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. And now we're going to hear some stories from a recent panel I moderated on collective action and the labor movement under Trump. Some excellent labor activists from an array of professions came together at AFL-CIO headquarters in D.C. to discuss how their movements are being reshaped by Trump-era politics and how they're taking action to reshape and strengthen their own labor movement to advance the struggles of working people everywhere. You're going to hear from Kat Payne, a housekeeper at the Philadelphia Marriott downtown. She's been organizing a union with Unite here. Rachel Sandlau-Ash, a law student and research assistant at Harvard University, which just unionized with the UAW. Anna Simmons, a member of the American Federation of Teachers in West Virginia. She's a building rep in her school who was involved in the recent statewide teacher strikes. And Lindy Wade Howard, a Boston-based JetBlue flight attendant who was a lead in-house organizer for their newly formed union with the TWU. One of the things that I, I wanted to ask everyone um, is uh, I, I recently did a story on um, sort of a surge in youth unionization. Um, and what would each of you tell a young person joining the labor movement today? I'm Anna Simmons. I'm an elementary school counselor in West Virginia, Morgantown, West Virginia in particular. Um, I'm also a mental health therapist in the community. So like many have spoken, I have two jobs. Um, Personally, I tell people frequently, um, and I see quite a few young faces in here, so you'll know exactly what I mean when I say this. It's about survival. And at this point, I mean, when we're talking about whether you can have a place to live or medical care or food, and those are your choices, you're choosing basic needs. And that's not acceptable. And with the rising student loan debt and everything that we come out as a generation with, um, not a great job market in a lot of areas. My data, or my state is a dying state. Um, literally, we are the only state, I saw something from 2016, for the last decade, two decades, we're the only state in the union that has declined in population by 8%. So why? I don't know. Are, I mean, are people dying? Are people moving for better options? Are, I mean, I don't know. But my answer to people in my state is, if you want to stay in this state, um, you need to join a union, and you need to be involved, uh, and you need to vote, <laughs> because, yeah. I would say that, you know, I didn't grow up in a union household. We didn't really have them. I grew up in Colorado. It was just kind of, you know, we just went to work and did what we did. But I think as I got older and I started to see, workers don't have to take it on the nose anymore. We don't have to, like you said, accept crumbs. This is a very prosperous time for everybody, but it seems the workers. And collective action is the only way to level the playing field. If you really want to make your way and, and make sure that everybody's taken care of, you have to unite. You have to be together. You have to work towards the same goals. Everybody should have to pay their dues to, to make it happen for everybody else. We don't just do this alone, and that is, that's the spirit of this. Collective action is the way to do this, to, to, to move forward and make America great again, in my opinion. Um, yeah, and I guess, I mean, you, you, I'm, I'm sure, well, you um, <laughs> so, are around young people, and perhaps 
are even considered one yourself. My name is Rachel Santalo Ash. I am a research assistant at, Har at Harvard Law School and a proud member of the Harvard Graduate Student Union, United Auto Workers. I am 24. I think that makes me a verified millennial. Um, and I think that also makes me much maligned for habits like eating avocados on toast. Um, I've been told that that means I'll never be able to buy a house, have a family. Um, and I think when, when young people look at the world and look at this sort of barrage of op-eds telling us that we're spoiled and lazy, and also look out and see that we have this rising student debt, see that um, cities that we are trying to live in for job opportunities, housing is becoming increasingly unaffordable, see that wages aren't going up, see that there is just no childcare really in this country, that if you want to have a family, there is nowhere for your kids to go until they're five, um, that it becomes really clear why we need to take collective action um, and so what I, I think it was actually a lot of fun talking to people about unions for the first time, um, for people who did not know a lot about the labor movement. It was really empowering to learn um, and to learn that there was this way to both improve your own life and take a stand to create a more just community in your own workplace, but also a more just politics, a more just economy sort of in the country as a whole. And it's a really inspiring thing to be a part of. Yeah, and I think it's it's important also to recognize that um, the the entire idea of graduate students organizing as workers um, is uh, well, I mean, it, it shouldn't be novel to the administration, but they often act like it's some sort of alien idea that right. dropped in from outer space somewhere. Whereas, you know, there's really no um, employer who has. Um, who can exert so much control over your lives as students because they control your housing costs, yep. Yep. the cost of your food and everyday expenses, right? right? Your working conditions, everything, right. and the future of your education, right. by the way. So. And I think, you know, there's this sort of imagined ideal that just really isn't true anymore, that it's, you know, sort of five years of hazing and then you get tenure and then the rest of your life is great. <laughs> um, but that's just not the reality of being in academia or being in graduate Just talk school. to all the adjunct unions yep. that are organizing. Yep. Yep. Um, the reality is that people work really hard for five or six or ten years in graduate school, teaching classes, doing research for professors, often under, you know, in unsafe conditions. I mean, we have people who have really unsafe conditions in their labs who get injured on the job um, and then go on to have these sort of contingent adjunct jobs um, where they're paid a few thousand dollars per semester, per course, and have to string together um, a bunch of different jobs to make ends meet, and none of those jobs have health care or benefits. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, university endowments keep going up, and tuition keeps going up, and it's totally unclear where any of that money is going. Um, so I think that, you know, people are realizing that this is a workplace, that these universities are large corporations, um, and that we need to build our power in order to make them places that work for everyone. Yeah, and um, as for, well, I think um, I, I've reported on hotel workers in, in, in Florida and um, just looking at the different um, types of issues that they face on the job that mm -hmm. people don't always think about when we think about, you know, ordinary bread and yes. butter workplace issues. But those are things that, that are key uh, to some of the organizing that you do, um, whether you're in a formal union or not, right? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, how do you, how do you integrate that um, as, you know, everything from gender justice to 
um, you know, protecting workers on the job to dealing with everything, everyday things like injury, which yes. people don't often associate with housekeepers, right. right? So My name is Kat Payne, and I'm a housekeeper. I'm also on the organizing committee at the Philadelphia Marriott downtown, and we're, and we're fighting for a fair process to see whether we want to have a union. One thing you have to realize is with the panel, I'm a different color. I am black. When we talk about survival, we're not talking about survival so we can make tenor, where we can buy a house. We're talking about we leave an eight-hour, 12-hour, 14-hour shift and whether we're going to make it home, whether we're going to be shot to death by a cop, by one of our own, hit by a car. So to tell a young person to join a union, they're worried about how they're going to make it home. I'm an older person that came from the 70s where the union and rights and everything was talked about, where I wore afro as a child, a pantsuit. <laughs> but we also had to worry about whether my father would make it home. He was also a union worker, but he didn't have rights as a black man and also as an immigrant. He was from the islands. So we had to keep quiet about a lot of things. Our names had to change. So how can we talk about rights when we couldn't even say our own name? How can we talk about rights when we couldn't even be represented as black people and he's part of a union? But he was the first hired, first fired. So now coming through this, I'm being told, being raised, hey, Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, we need you to uh, help us to organize the young people. What am I to say? So you know what I tell him? I was raised to be a leader. That's all I know. I was raised to be a fighter. That's all I was shown. I was raised to make history because that's what I read about, because I wanted to know how can I change the future. So what I tell the young people is, just like it's my responsibility, it's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to change the world. Isn't that what y'all being taught about? When y'all see other people, not just white, when y'all see Obama, when y'all see other people, not just Harriet Tubman and people of slavery, but people of today being CEOs, you can be a leader too. And that starts with the union. That starts with the me too. I also work with people of color. So I'm not just black. I'm a Caribbean, and I also deal with other Caribbeans and people of other colors that deal with sexual harassment, that deal with racism, that deal with labor issues, that deal with fair housing. So that's what I would tell a young person. Be a leader, because I'm being a leader. And even though there are setbacks, we're still moving forward. I'm here right now amongst you. So I'm a shining example of what an old lady can do, <laughs> representing with the young people. And we still are hand in hand with the same ideas, the same goals, the same dreams, not just for your future, but for your future children, if you have any. So be that. Be a union representative. It starts from there. And then you'll become a community leader. And then maybe you'll be speaking on the microphone. <laughs> important to realize that, you know, um, Trump has really sort of galvanized a whole bunch of different autonomous mass movements um, that are sort of harkening back to earlier iterations of the civil rights movement and the feminist movement um, and realizing that labor had a role in all of those mm -hmm. um, that is often forgotten um, because in our era of neoliberal culture and politics, um, that, that whole narrative has been removed. Right? Um, the idea that these are workers' struggles, as mm -hmm. well as struggles for gender justice, for racial justice, right? for integration. So um, learning how to 
not disentangle those, but just to tackle them, um, you know, as they're intertwined and as they often get messily intertwined, right? Um, and, and learning how to work within those spaces, I think, is is a really important challenge. Going back to what we're facing at this political moment, um, I think maybe we should just maybe round up with a with a few words about like how do you move forward? We just had a very unfavorable Supreme Court decision coming down that basically um, once again reaffirms kind of the this wave of uh, right to work um, and and an attack on on public sector unions going forward. But um, on the other hand, we have states like West Virginia where you're already sort of living in a post Janus labor landscape, right? Mm -hmm. um, your union doesn't technically have collective bargaining rights, right? right. And your strike is not technically a strike, but it was right. it was a work stoppage, right? You know, so there are all these constraints, these little constraints, and so you know, outside the courts, like, what can we do to sort of redefine collective action so that it, it's not contingent upon all these things that we we have seen sort of disappear from under us, right? With the change of an administration. So, um, yeah, and I guess, you know, um, whoever wants to say something about that first, I mean, um, maybe, I, I guess, um, right now, you're, well, you're calling for a fair process, yes. right? So you're yes. moving forward. I yes. mean, how do you, you're, you're not a formal union, but you are nonetheless organizing, right? Yes. So, um, you know, what are, what are some of the challenges that, that you're facing on the ground, um, you know, even without this sort of institutional backbone? Yes, we are, we are finding strength because, remember, Marriott is the biggest hotel in the world. So imagine telling your, your, uh, your people, uh, we're fighting the Goliath, the Marriott. Oh, I don't want to do that. And then you have to remind them that there was David, how he had a small stone, and how <laughs> he conquered the... So when you say it like that, that's kind of hard to believe. So the one thing that I try to say is that I am the physical David. Imagine yourself as the physical David. And we have these political people that are also strong and big. But what if we can use politics to help us in our cause? So now we're David. We have the stone, the politicians. And now we can knock down this Goliath. So that's one way in facing the challenges that we have in convincing people that a small person and a small stone can knock down something, can knock down a corporate giant. So that's what I would tell them, why voting is important, why politics is important, they should work hand in hand. I think too, to play off of that, um, I thought quite a lot about this over the last couple of weeks when I was planning for this, and West Virginia is such an interesting place on so many accounts. You should come visit sometime. Tourism is our new industry because our governor owns a Greenbrier, and I think... Um, <laughs> That, to me, I think perfectly captures what's happening on the national scale, and it's really enlightening on that smaller scale level. We have a billionaire count in West Virginia of one. He is our governor, and he was endorsed by our unions in the primaries. And when I think about that, I think, I mean, I think I'm speaking to members. That's my understanding of who I'm speaking to today. And I, I want you to challenge your leaders in your unions when those endorsements come out and something crazy like that is happening. <laughs> One billionaire in the state is our governor endorsed by labor unions. He does not have our best interest in mind. And when I've asked people why, why did that happen? And, and mind you, it wasn't that he was the only person running in the primary. He was contested. There were two other candidates that would have been phenomenal for labor. Um, but they didn't have as much money is what I was told. 
they didn't have as much money, they couldn't raise as much money, they wouldn't win the election. He was most likely to win, so we endorsed him so that hopefully he would work with us in the future. That's what I was told. That's not okay. And I think that at some points we as voters have to challenge um, those as they come down. Um, Joe Manchin right now is our senator forever. Um, I have strong opinions about Joe Manchin. I don't think he's a strong supporter of labor. Does he sometimes get it right? Yeah. But does he always? No. And a lot of times he doesn't. He basically gets it right when it's going to be publicized. That's when he gets it right. All those little votes that go on behind closed doors or all those little amendments to bills that get thrown in, we have to be watching who's doing what. So we have to be informed and we have to understand the other side of this, um, having a billionaire as our governor and one of the poorest nations in the world, or states in the, the nation. But on the other side of that, we also have coming up in the midst of all of our um, work stoppage stuff in our time in the Capitol, they voted on, I believe it's called SB 12, which is Senate Bill 12 in West Virginia. And what that bill is looking at, and this is another issue, but I think one that I want to highlight because we have to understand that yes, the issues are different, but they're strategic from the top down. So they have placed on our ballot in November SB 12, which if it passes, it will remove the constitutional right in the state of West Virginia to an abortion. In the state of West Virginia where that is a very, I mean the only other issue that you could maybe bring up that would get people more fired up is Second Amendment rights. They have put this on our ballot intentionally and that is exactly what they will target. They will not talk at all about labor. They won't even mention it. They won't mention the teacher work stoppage. It won't come up. All they will talk about is who's going to vote for this and who's going to not vote for this. And that's how they will divide us. And it will work if we're not paying attention and talking amongst one another and having those difficult conversations because that's not truly what's on the line. Um, now seeing what's happening in the state Supreme Court, or the National Supreme Court, it's really getting scary about what that could mean for West Virginia. But even just on that alone, a lot of people who are very anti-labor will get elected on that one issue. And that's nationwide. Um, Second Amendment rights, immigration, and abortion. Those are the three main things that divide people just like that. And that's exactly what they use. It's strategy. They really don't care about that bill. They don't care about that constitutional right. It doesn't matter to them. They're all men anyway, so they really don't give a shit. Excuse my language. Um, so they don't care, and they're using it as a, a political move, and we just have to be aware and know that that's exactly what's happening. And sometimes it seems so obvious. You're like, no, they wouldn't. Yeah, they would, and they do, and they are, and they will. So that's my thought on that. You know, but moving, moving forward, I think as long as people are seeing, you know, one contract at a time that workers are gaining these rights and gaining these advantages and, and getting better wages and better health care, one contract at, at a time, uh, the younger generation, all the people who are currently working will see that, you know, collective action is the way to go. Um, we have to keep organizing. We have to get out there. You know, we've, TWU is already, um, we filed for Spirit, um, Spirit Airlines, customer service agents. We're trying to move forward and get more people to see that this is the way to move forward. Because, again, a rising tide lifts all boats. If we can get everybody up kind of on plane, this is it's a good thing. We can only move forward from here, and the only way to do that, again, is through collective action.
And I think the labor movement itself is a vehicle for organizing people beyond sort of these narrow wedge issues that are used to divide, you know. And the idea that um, finding a, a collective movement that is beyond sort of partisanship, and I think I, West Virginia was a great example of that. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, long before you guys had your union election, right, I mean, on, on Harvard's campus, I mean, that is an area where workers of all stripes are, are sort of, you know, in this kind of enmeshed in this, in this campus community, right? Uh, and so you're sort of there cheek by jowl and you kind of recognize, you know, exactly. even as an undergrad you recognize yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it's wonderful because now that we have these, all of these different unions on campus, we can really work together. We can collaborate. We can make coordinated demands of the university. We can support one another. Um, and on the topic of supporting one another, um, something that I think will be sort of crucial in the sort of, especially in this post-Janus world, is demanding that our politicians get rid of the restrictions on what labor unions can do. Get rid of the rules that forbid us from engaging in sympathy strikes and sympathy boycotts and doing the work that it takes to support each other in the struggle. Um, and if we're going to expect our politicians to support immigration reform and expanding access to health care, we need to also demand that they support changes to our labor law that make it possible for us to organize and possible for us to stand together. Yeah. Sympathy, also known as solidarity. Exactly. Right? <laughs> That's, um, That's a much better word. I also want to say, though, that we don't have to wait for that. Um, and I think West Virginia is a perfect example. Like, did we have permission to do what we did? No. Did the laws support what we did? No. Is it likely that harder and more strict laws are coming down if these people win this election by dividing people on this one constitutional right? Absolutely. We know what's coming. We don't care. And so I think West Virginia is unique in that. Um, we're not Harvard. We're not on that level. Um, we're unique in that because we have nothing left to lose. I mean, what are they going to take from us? And I think my hope in, in coming to, to events like this is just to amp you all up that it can get this bad for you all too. I hope it's not. Um, and I think we need to act before it does. Because, yeah, desperation is a really great motivator, mm -hmm. but we don't have to be that desperate before we act. Um, and we don't have to be given permission by the politicians who don't want to give us permission because we're not giving them money. Um, it just isn't going to work that way. And if we keep waiting for it to trickle down, I mean, trickle down economics and all of that, none of that trickle down stuff ever works. Spoiler alert, it's not going to work. <laughs> um, so we just have to do it. Yeah. And, and that's what we did in West Virginia. The trickle down was go back on good faith and do what you're told. And that wasn't going to work for us. <laughs> rights are not, labor rights are not granted, they're claimed, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's on us. Um, I, I know that uh, we're, we're running over. I don't know if there's still time for questions, if we wanted to take one or two. But if you, yeah. um, if anyone had any, that, uh, yeah. yeah. So, hi, I'm Sam. Thank you, Sam. Today happens to be my 20th birthday. Happy <laughs> <laughs> birthday. birthday. I've been a union member for two years wow. with the uh, union of Bernal student bank workers, like the first undergrad union in this country. I'm one of the leaders, organizers. We're now trying to expand to all of campus <coughs> outside of dining hall. And my question is like, when there are like, mass union busting campaigns in 
got a lot of hate from my workers because of those. How do you keep it positive and keep your hope going forward? Oh, wow. Uh, one of the things I always tell them is that we wouldn't have the Civil Rights Movement, we wouldn't have the Bill of Rights, we wouldn't have voting rights, we wouldn't have women voting. That's what keeps me motivated, is that we have to keep going because they kept going. So we have to bust open doors. Like I said, if you look around, there are many different people of color here. And you see there's a majority of women that was not allowed to speak. You yourself are here being able to speak. So I've always faced obstacles, even from my coworkers. But I just do it with a smile, and I come forward, and I say, hey, we're trying to get the union together. We're trying to organize the union. Do that. Because I know that we will win, and I know the changes, because y'all are here. Even just looking at this building, I can't give up. You know how inspired I was looking at this building and seeing that I had from I am a man out there picture to I am a human. That's great elevation. Who cannot be inspired every day to go in and organize more? to be part of a great team. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Michelle Chen with Kat Payne, Rachel Sandlow-Ash, Anna Simmons, and Lindy Wade-Howard. We will have more information about all of them and about the panel that they were part of up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. For ARG this week, I'm talking about a piece by friend of the show David Dayan at HuffPost Highline titled Inhuman Resources. It is a piece that does what Dave does best, pulls apart all the corrupt practices of the finance industry. But in this case, focus on a sexual harassment investigation that turned into an epic lawsuit over retaliation. In this case, the complainant was one Mike Piccarella, an employee at HSBC Bank who just wanted to do his job. In this case, that was in part to ensure the bank's compliance with the law and wound up betrayed by human resources and harassed and gaslit out of his high paying job after he stood up for a female colleague who was being sexually harassed by their female boss. At bottom, though, the details of the harassment themselves are horrifying, and you should really read the entire story. This is a story about how human resources at most companies is only there to protect the company, and often seems as though it's explicitly there to drive out complainants and whistleblowers to protect the perpetrators. It's also a story about how that culture is deeply intertwined with other kinds of corporate malfeasance, how the entire culture of finance capital in particular, but capitalist structures in general, is based around internal loyalty, patriarchal hierarchies, and the idea that any harm done by the company is justified in the endless pursuit of profits. As Dave writes, quote, those who work for human resources occupy a nearly impossible position within the corporate world. On the one hand, they're tasked with ensuring a healthy work environment for all employees. On the other, they're subordinate to senior managers and often don't have the leverage to resolve issues where a leader is accused of abusing his power. Companies don't want to have to face the fact that somebody who produces a lot of income for them may not be able to work there anymore, says Carol Gordon, who worked in HR for financial institutions for 35 years. 
The belief that HR is biased towards management chills rank-and-file employees from ever coming forward. A bipartisan task force commissioned in 2016 by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission cited a research suggesting that between 87 and 94 percent of harassment claims go unreported. Gordon recommends that firms employ external legal counsel for the most sensitive cases to remove conflicts of interest, but that's an added and largely unwanted expense for most companies. The EEOC can also help resolve complaints, but the agency is badly understaffed and under-resourced. End quote. And of course, it is only likely to get more so under the Trump administration. The stories of retaliation at this high-end bank involve big bonuses disappearing, something that many belabored listeners might not shed too many tears about. But the truth is that much of the harassment, bullying, and retaliation that is described in this story happens to workers at all levels, from mid-level bank executives to fast food workers to journalists. Of course, part of the story is that Mike was pursuing most of this fight on his own without even the support of the person he had been trying to help in the first place. This winds up underlining the case for collective action. When your boss is bullying one person, it's safe to assume there are more people feeling their pressure, and sexual harassers often abuse their power in other ways, some of which, we should note, might be perfectly legal if you can't prove that they're retaliation explicitly. Perhaps we could note that on this front, as on so many others, the best defense is a good offense, having a union. My ARG pick for this episode is by Sam Pizzagatti in The Guardian. It's called Minimum Wage. It's time to talk about a maximum wage. Here, Pizzagatti, longtime activist on income inequality, makes the case for a maximum, not a minimum wage. Sound weird? Why not? There was a time, not too long ago, that the idea that a worker should be guaranteed a minimum hourly wage was seen as anathema, an assault on the basic free market values of American society, an obscene, threatening symbol of class warfare. Even today, sometimes the idea of raising minimum wages is treated with derision, as if it's just free money being lavished on the poor, even when they fail to work well enough or hard enough to really earn that wage. So it's amazing that today the minimum wage still manages to be a fairly popular labor protection. Referenda to raise minimum wages are consistently approved by voters nationwide, many of them making well above the minimum wage themselves. That's because people believe in the trickle-up effect of boosting the workers at the very bottom. A few years ago, no one could even fathom a $15 minimum hourly wage, but today, millions of workers are benefiting from new policies and laws that phase in $15 hourly wages, because it's just the right thing to do. And in a lot of places in this country, $15 is not enough to live on anyway. So why not go further and propose a maximum wage, which would essentially cap the salaries of the richest among us and tax the rest of their wealth, so that... Some of their outrageously inflated executive pay, undeserved inherited wealth, stock bonuses, and other excessive sources of income can be reclaimed and redistributed to the vast majority of people who earn less than the very tip-top of the income brackets. They currently number less than the top 1% of income earners nationwide, but they control a vast portion of the country's overall riches. Why is this any less disturbing to us than millions of Americans earning poverty wages every day in terrible jobs? And minimum wage and maximum wage were once upon a time discussed in tandem with each other. 
Even in the 1940s, the idea of taxing nearly 100% of incomes above a very high amount was seen as a real political viability. And in fact, Pizzagatti points out that in the wake of the Great Depression, President Roosevelt pushed through a massive wealth tax, and the country rallied behind it. Quote, by 1944, America's richest faced a 94% tax rate on income over $200,000. Our top tax rate hovered around 90% for the next two decades, a span of time that saw the U.S. give birth to the world's first mass middle class. Outrageously high rewards that corporate executives can pocket give these executives in turn an incentive to behave outrageously, to do whatever it takes, from downsizing workforces to cutting pensions, to hike their share price and stuff their own pockets. Their wealth, in other words, comes at the expense of the public welfare. So what is to be done? One way to start tackling this huge wealth gap can start with something simple like capping CEO pay for companies that do business with the government. That is, the people whose salaries come from our tax dollars. We can place firm limits on how many taxpayer dollars go to line the pockets of CEOs of big military contractors like Lockheed Martin. It should not be controversial, considering how much blood and treasure we already feed into our war machine. Some states like Oregon are implementing policies that target inequality head-on with business surtaxes on executives who make hundreds of times in excess of their lowest paid workers' earnings. Often, business leaders grumble at minimum wage hikes as a blow to economic growth, but there are far stronger economic arguments that a minimum wage provides the kind of income boost to the poorest workers that can stimulate the whole economy, and it pays off in terms of long-term economic stability and staving off financial crisis for the many households who are living on the edge. As long as poverty is an everyday reality that millions of us have to live with to a greater extent than even our parents' generation, Pizzagatti reminds us, quote, the maximum wage is an idea whose time has come. I think most Americans would agree that no enterprise where workers would have to labor over a century to make what their CEOs can make in a year should get a single one of our tax dollars. So a super tax on super rich individuals can yield enough public funds to keep federal and state coffers sustainable for the social programs that truly serve the masses. Universal health care, social security, tax credits for working people that can remedy the worst forms of inequality, all things that the government typically says it's too broke to fund. If we think of people of all wealth levels as entitled to a decent quality of life, isn't a financial haircut on the richest people on the planet a reasonable thing for us to demand? If the idea of capping excess wealth elicits jeers from the establishment today, maybe that's not ridicule you're hearing, but fear. Fear that the sham of their ill-gotten gains is finally being revealed, and fear that they can't get away with it any longer. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.